Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret's just-arrived collection of swim and other sun-ready silhouettes. Pack your bags with new styles from the Very Sexy Collection, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy Push-Up Bra, in on-trend hues like green and citron and black shine. Rewind to the future with the VS Archives Swim Collection, inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. Plus, mix and match with their wide range of bikini tops and bottoms to find your dream suit. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Welcome to Criminalia, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the final episode of the Season of Treason here on Criminalia, where we've been exploring the lives and motivations of some of the most notorious traitors throughout history. I'm Marie Tremarkey. And I'm Holly Fry. Here in the United States, if you Google the phrase famous traitor, the top result is, drumroll please, (laughs) Benedict Arnold. Big surprise. Not a surprise even in the slightest. He is not the only big name. You will also see Anne Boleyn, Guy Fawkes, Vialtes of Trachis, Tokyo Rose, Mata Hari, Cassius and Brutus, Judas Iscariot. These are all names that are associated with treason, and many, at least where Maria and I live, have become kind of epithets for being a traitor. Not just under any legal definition of treason, although we certainly talked about that a lot, uh, but we did not talk about any of the people that I just mentioned this season. And that's because, as we said, their stories are so well known that they're like shorthand ways to call somebody uh, a traitor. So we wanted to tell the stories of people who were accused of the crime and whose stories are not as well known and should be. At the beginning of the season, we shared this quote from author and historian Andrew Linklater, who had said, some people are born to treachery. It was a season of interesting moments, for sure. Our criteria was set by kind of basically two things. First, was it treachery? No, I'm kidding there. First. Of course, was the person accused of treason? Yes? 
It's not a trick question, although it sounds like it might be, because these crimes can be confused with things like sedition or espionage. So, okay. And then we brought in the legal definitions of treason, depending on the time and place that that person lived in. So treason, pretty generally, is the crime of betraying a nation or sovereign by acts considered dangerous to security. We also talked about treason as it applies to shaming or in some way disgracing a person of nobility, often referred to as high treason. Taking all of these things into consideration, a cursory glance suggests that, well, there were just a lot of variables from show to show. When it came to activities, sure, but also when it came to motivation. So the late FBI director J. Edgar Hoover once posed the question, why would an American betray his country? J. Edgar Hoover answered it himself, stating, quote, the motives are many and often intertwined. Money, the temporary thrill of secretive work, personal weaknesses, blackmail, feelings of spite against one's country because of an imagined wrong, or a hope to assist relatives in communist countries. We talked about persons choosing to engage in treasonous activities because of those very reasons. Plus, we'd add a commitment to an ideology, and sometimes, as in the case of Malarudenschuld, for love. Treason, we found, could involve anything from a political assassination to undermining one's government from the inside, and the motives we found were not always relevant to the characterization of the treasonous act. For instance, sometimes people do foolish things just for love. So as we do every season, when we started this season of treason, we were curious if some of these stories about traitors would now somehow look less traitory, traitor-ish, <laughs> when viewed through our modern eye. So how did they fare? There were a bunch of traitors who engaged in treason during war, including Douglas Chandler, Ezra Pound, those are two names that come to mind, both of whom used shortwave radio to deliver their messages. Although we can't speak to whether their motivations would be different today, their activities, if carried out today, would also be considered treasonous. We talked about James Bond, or, well, I mean, at least we talked about one of the real men who perhaps inspired the character the first modern super spy, Sidney Riley. When it comes to treason, it was rumored Riley had worked for more than four different governments during his career and had his hand in a lot of terrible activities. Riley's story, too, doesn't look any different today than when he lived his life in the early 20th century. Bad is bad. La Verenti Beria falls into this as well. Beria once said, quote, Let our enemies know that anyone who attempts to raise a hand against the will of our people, against the will of the party of Lenin and Stalin, will be mercilessly crushed and destroyed. To say he lived by those words would be a big understatement. He did terrible things in his life. He did terrible things under Stalin, and he can still be considered a terrible person with a lack of moral compass when you look at his life and his choices today. There was also a second significant motivation that we discovered among this season's traitors. And these were cases where people took part in acts of treason because of their strong moral beliefs, regardless of whether or not war or violence was at hand. Of course, John Brown immediately comes to mind. An American abolitionist, Brown's conviction and execution for treason against the Commonwealth of Virginia was the spark that ignited the American Civil War. 
American naturalist and poet Henry David Thoreau once wrote, quote, live your beliefs and you can turn the world around. And Brown did live those beliefs despite the consequences. Robert Wilcox, the Iron Duke of Hawaii, too, fought for people's rights. He was arrested for treason after leading uprisings against the Hawaiian government after the monarchy was stolen from the Hawaiians. So interestingly, and this is just something that we observed and thought we would share about this season, there was one man who caught our attention, despite none of this season's episodes focusing on him, and that's John Wilkes Booth. Booth, the actor and man made famous when he assassinated United States President Abraham Lincoln, made an appearance in more than one of our treason episodes, although he himself was never charged with any treasonous activities. So, where were his cameos? John Brown and Mary Surratt. In regard to Brown, Booth went way out of his way to watch that abolitionist executed. And Mary, well, Booth's story crossed hers when he famously took part in the plot to assassinate the president, a plan that was hatched at her home. It's always really curious to see who's on the sidelines. <laughs> yeah, he's like <laughs> the gift that keeps giving. He just keeps showing up. Like, where? He just keeps showing up. Where will he <laughs> pop up again? Um, if you have not been with us during previous seasons, uh, we have a tradition around here at the end of each season. Maria and I pick our favorite shows and our favorite cocktails uh, and mocktails, and we talk about them. And we would love for you to tell us about the stories and drinks that you liked best as well. You could just tag hashtag Criminalia. We will see which favorites we all have in common. But before we talk about all of those favorites, we are going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Then we'll meet you back here with our lists. Welcome back to Criminalia. Let's begin with our top three treasonists of the season. Would you like me to start, Maria? Yeah, why don't you go ahead? I'm, I'm ready to go, too. I'm going to start with someone that I don't like at all. <laughs> I have one of those but on I my am list. <laughs> fascinated by this story. Uh-huh. And that's Douglas Chandler. He was a great story. He was interesting. He was not what I thought he was going to be. No, it's one of those things that's fascinating to me in how he, I am 100% confident if you asked him, he would talk as though he were the hero of the story. That's his entire thing. And yet he obviously was broadcasting Nazi propaganda. Right. He's got terrible stuff going on in his head. Yet. But he has justified all of this behavior. It's super strange to me, but also very interesting. And I think kind of an interesting cautionary tale. We like to talk in modern times as we are living through a time of great upheaval and political unrest about people being radicalized as though this is new. And like, how did, you know, this person we thought was completely normal and level headed become so invested in this cause that makes no sense for the way they have lived their life. And this is one of those, like, no, this has always been a thing that has happened. And it's a bigger piece of the psychological puzzle that is humanity. He's such a weird one to me. I don't know how 
You just aren't, you can't get him. I think the prevailing thing, and part of it is that it is so alien to me, is just anyone that is that confident in themselves at every turn that I'm like, that's why he thought he got an inkling that something was correct. And he's such a confident person. Of course, I've come to this conclusion. This is the right thing. And at that point, the blinders are on. Like the bias is making anything that contradicts that ideology not either not something you acknowledge or something that you see and discredit, which is just wild to me. I did not have him on my list, but I actually had some similar reasons for picking Ezra Pound. And okay, first of all, Ezra Pound, do you know what that man sounded like? Can you even imagine him on the air going, you're calling Pound speaking, Ezra Pound speaking. I think that was his call. I like, I've heard him read poetry. I can't imagine him doing a radio show. And the entire time we did that episode, all I heard in my head was him. But <laughs> I had a really difficult time with that show because of there's a really interesting man who is considered responsible for defining, promoting this whole new aesthetic in poetry. And the one thing that always, I think I was in college when I first learned his, his movement and his whole compo- composing the sequence of the musical phrase, not the sequence of the metronome, always really stood out to me as something really important as a writer. But then you've got Ezra Pound, this fascist sympathizer, fierce anti-Semite, controversial, what are his political motivations? I don't even understand how, like, the duality of this man. And he was so confusing and interesting and uncomfortable for me. Oh, yeah. That I had to put him on my list because he, he, I will, I can't figure him out. And that's the kind of story that kind of sticks with you, which is part of that, right? Yeah. The thing that fascinated me about Ezra Pound is that he was so adamant he had done nothing wrong. Nothing. Nothing at all. Like, his ideology was so ingrained that he was like, what? I'm just talking. That's not treason. It's not. Wait, my dude. (laughs) Like, I actually could see, I was envisioning him going through this thought process of it not being all that different than, say, a modernist movement that he's working on literary artists. And there was this quote that he had when he was really getting cozy with Mussolini. And he was like, well, I think that we have a lot of financial theory in common. And I also feel that good art is made under strong, strict leadership. That quote to me keeps going. I keep going back to that one where I'm like, how did, is that my step into trying to understand I can't understand. Like, I don't understand. He's a, he was a toughie. But yeah, go listen to him read poetry on YouTube and then imagine his radio show. <laughs> Europe calling. So uh, who else is on your list? Thomas Wilson Dorr. Did you pick Dorr? I, I almost did. I removed him from my list. He didn't make it. There are a lot of things I really enjoy about this story. One, I love the idea that Rhode Island had two competing governments for a minute. And growing up in New England, I, I got to tell you, I'm like, yeah, that's a big surprise. Like, what are you <laughs> No disrespect on Rhode Island. <laughs> the other thing is that even though his efforts were not successful and he went about things in a way that may not have been the best, I like that he was really trying to promote 
moving forward in a way that was positive, that was more equitable for more people. I hate that he backed off of his efforts to try to get equity for Black residents of Rhode Island as part of trying to, like, garner support from as many people as possible. The seeds were there of something that, can you imagine if his effort had succeeded and Rhode Island became like this bastion of really forward thinking ahead of everybody else? Like, how would that have changed the course of U.S. history? Right. And only because they never picked up a constitution from when the Revolutionary <laughs> War was done. They just sat around. <laughs> and we, didn't what, do, we didn't do the homework. <laughs> right. This is what happens when you don't complete the paperwork. Okay? <laughs> you get two governments. <laughs> yes. It's, a, it's such a ride for that reason. Yeah. And the idea that, you know, he... And just he is important and not somebody that gets talked about a lot, but because he was the first person convicted of treason against one of the United States. Yes. It's just interesting. Yeah. He's not a name. I don't think many people are like, yes, Thomas Dore, that progressive, interesting person. Right? We don't really think of him in that way. I had not. I recall anyway. when we did that episode, I recalled asking you if you had known about him or the revolution before, because we grew up in very different places. And when I was growing up, this actually also segues into my second choice is Aaron Burr. And the reason why I chose Aaron Burr is partly because of this reason right here. I don't know what it's like in New England right now when you're in school, but when I was growing up in New England, history class, we spent a lot of time. Like it looks in hindsight, I'm like, that was a really large percentage of our learning time in history about the Revolutionary War and the revolutionists, and that included the Door Rebellion, which I don't think at the time, or maybe even still now, gets covered in a lot of history classes. I have a love of, and it's probably because of that history class from when I was little, I just have this love of the revolutionary time and history that's written about it. But the history that I like that's from this period of time is like what we saw with Aaron Burr, which was like, you had, you had a guy in a duel. Like you had, like you had all of these like things that today just make your mind go. Er there were duels then, still like Revolutionary War hero, founding father. But then you have these two other founding fathers arguing about him, and one is mad at the other and says, "You're behaving like the King of Britain," which you got to think at that time is like a high ouch factor. <laughs> that, that is a. A couple having a fight and one of them telling them they're just like their parents. You're just like your it's mother. It's like that like, level. <laughs> I think it was, what was it? Like Luther Martin tells Thomas Jefferson, who's president at the time, like, you're acting like the king of Great Britain. And I imagine that Jefferson's head just exploded. Then he comes out with, I'm going to arrest you for treason too, because you're in cahoots with him. Like, these are the stories about the patriots, the revolutionists, the, these guys, these founding fathers who we all look at and go, oh. They wrote the Constitution this way, so we should blah, 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 blah. And I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't, but what I'm suggesting is they were also dicks to each other from time to time. Right. And we really saw that with Aaron Burr, where there's also, there was another comment, possibly also from Martin, who looked at Jefferson and went, basically, you can't just hang a guy for treason because you don't like him. That's not how we wrote our documents. You think you know your founding fathers, but really... You don't know anyone, do you? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Listen, here is what we learn over and over. Humans are fallible and petty. And when they're backed into a corner, they act like children often. It's one of those things I am a very big fan of not having hero worship of anybody. Like I can, the people that I admire in history or even in modern day and be like, oh, that person is a really good writer. But I'm never like, that person is perfect because they're nobody is you're gonna find out something horrible like they're secretly racist or they're incredibly cruel to their children or like something is going to pop up it's just something listen i am a foul mouth monster (laughs) it's very judgmental so in case anybody thought i might be nice you're just being the king of great britain (laughs) (laughs) i'm so like george the third i'm mistaken for him at every turn oh he had purple hair too i heard (laughs) I just don't know. Okay, so number three. This is one that I just love because it shows how pivotal certain people can become in history. It goes back to the idea of how, like, John Wilkes Booth keeps popping up in American history in weird places. On the sidelines. You cannot escape the importance of Queen Elizabeth I. So my third choice is Chidiak Tichborn. I almost went there. I'm glad you did because I I didn't, and I think he should be on the list. Because that is another one where that entire conflict that was playing out for a very long time in Great Britain over the religion of the country, how many people just were completely concerned about their immortal souls and had worked that into their Mm -hmm. efforts to gain political and governmental power. That's fascinating to me. <laughs> At the end yeah. of the day, I'm like, but just go to a different church. I know it's not that simple. <laughs> it's part of a bigger cultural right. identity. <laughs> and because at this point in time, religion and politics very commonly, very integrated. I think we have talked about on this show before how like when you're talking about the papacy going so far back. You can't think of it as exclusively a religious institution because the papacy had its hand in all of the government of Europe and has at times been so incredibly powerful that something like a papal bull can become like a thing that just suddenly like rouses all the forces and everybody has to scramble and figure out their position and how they're going to defend their queen against this papal bull and who else is going to get involved in. No, but this guy does not like it and thinks the papal bull should be followed. And so kill him. The wildest and strangest thing. The other part of all of these types of historical stories to me that becomes very interesting. We talk about them in the course of an episode. Right. It's short. If it were the kind of thing that's going to happen today, not that it would, but if it were to, these would be emails that go back and forth. It would all happen very quickly. People would be scrambling and picking their positions and whatnot. But because of the time this is happening in, you have to imagine all of that in slow motion. I know. And so you are working up your rage or your chagrin or your indignation over a slow burn to get to the point where you actually take action on it. I know. And the slow burn is dangerous. And it's something I think we're not in the modern era accustomed to that idea. We have very much the opposite where it's like, someone said something bad about my casserole recipe on Twitter. I'm irate. And then you immediately you're oh, reply yeah. and tell yeah. them where they're 
they can Where stick they can their go. idea like, about <laughs> pasta and cheese. What do they know about that? That is obviously a much more low level, and I hope nobody is incited to violence over such an interaction, but I'm sure people have been. PS people. So, yeah, it's interesting to me to remember, like, then this messenger got on a horse. <laughs> exactly. And then two days later ended up where he needed to be. Right. Yeah, This traveled by little... sea and yes. then to another <laughs> horse and then over to the queen like it just and then eight months later it was finally read by the queen (laughs) and then everybody got upset but then they had to send their message about how upset they were by a horse (laughs) another eight months goes by like (laughs) it's not that long but even so it really is so much more of a slower game than we're used to and of course i really did the whole sidebar that we had about I can't do the plot today. I don't have the right clothes on. Even though it is in the context of the actual thing, that makes perfect sense. And it is not as paltry as it sounds when but we say it today. It, it just, it stood out to me too. It's just one of those quotes that you under, you know what he's talking about, but like, there's also the... I can't do the plot today. I don't have the right clothes. Oh my my pants are not okay. Every single season that we have done, I will always remember, unfortunately, not his name because he used like 10,000 different names. Stanley, I forget his name. He was in our imposters episode and he was very concerned about his clothes as well. <laughs> so, yes. Mean, yes. Listen. It's important to have the right tools for the job. In some cases, yes, absolutely. What is your third pick? My third pick, let me tell you, and then I've got perhaps one, one thing to say about it. <laughs> very not technically what I normally would have picked as one of my three, but Beria, Laurenti Beria is my third. Ooh, that's a hard one too. Okay. Holy crap. That show was like talking about a Prince of Darkness. Like I, I just, I legitimately had, a terrifying person. I had to include him because I, I didn't like anything about his story. He had, he wanted a bad reputation. He cultivated his bad reputation. He reveled in having a bad reputation. And we only scratched the surface of what he was capable of and what he had his hands in. And that, that basically is all I have to say about him. It was, he was a terrifying person to talk about and to learn about. And I didn't know about him prior to our episode. No, I didn't either. He is scary. It's one of those things where, you know, you, I think most of us grow up thinking about, you hear tales of scary things. And, but as you, get older and you walk through life most of us are like oh no but it's fine most people are not like that and most people are safe but there it's easy to forget that there are legitimately terrifying people with no good intention in the world i don't like being reminded of it but i you can't turn a blind eye to these things all the time it's Mm -hmm. important to remember and talk about them because that's how we hopefully remind ourselves as a group of species to try to be better. (laughs) Unfortunately, Beria's try to be better would be like, now I've got these six extra ways to torture you. Like, I just feel like he was wired so differently than what I understand in a person. He was terrifying. I have an honorable mention to you. I don't, but I'm hoping your honorable mention is like a little less harrowing than Beria. (laughs) Right? Maybe he should have been the honorable mention. My honorable mention is... Because I didn't really know much about the incident and I didn't know anything about the specifics, the Battle of Blair Mountain is my honor. Oh, yeah. And this is really a story that I knew that it was an event that had occurred in American history. I didn't know anything more about it. 
it's a story that I'm really glad to have learned and to to looked into and to understood better. That was one I had known about. I have it has come up on other shows that I've done. And it's one I almost picked because it is such an important story about like really mm-hmm. how much people have had to fight for really basic labor rights that most of us would take for granted now. But I didn't pick it only because I don't know why. We'll share an honorable mention. Yes. I want to pick, we were talking during the break before we came back and started talking about these, that I, my instinct is to only pick the people who were committing treason for principled reasons. <laughs> but that's not very interesting. I generally um, don't tend to do things like that. I typically would not have put like a barrier on my top three list, but he was in my season that I needed to include him, good or bad. I did kind of the same thing in picking my top three drinks for this season in that I didn't necessarily go with the three that were my most favorites to drink. I kind of did, so brace that, for that. But that's how I usually do it. And so when I was doing it, I was like, <laughs> oh, this is going to be a little swapped out. So actually, before we do our drinks, let's take a break for a word from our sponsor. And we will meet you right back here. Welcome back to Criminalia. So let's talk about those drinks. (laughs) So I was just talking about how I wasn't picking my drinks based on how I enjoyed drinking them, but it's not true for one of my three choices. So I will start with that one. The first choice that I have is Exaggerated Vigor, inspired by Robert Wilcox. The really simple answer as to why I picked this is because... Hibiscus. No, if I... No, actually, that would be the right choice, usually. As a whole, this drink is delicious, and if you haven't tried it, you're missing out. And, like, you really... It is a really yummy one. It was on my list as well. The the mocktail is fantastic. The cocktail is fantastic. I I have the uh, the list. It's an ounce of vodka, a half an ounce of ginger liqueur, three quarters of an ounce of lemon juice, three quarters of an ounce of hibiscus syrup, and then you shake it. Strain it over rice, I believe. I didn't put this part in my in my notes. And top it with some uh, club soda, or I, as I did, Fresca, because it's one of my favorites. <laughs> I like a grapefruit sparkling water. Okay? <laughs> I understand. Listen, no shame in that game. I can't speak to a ginger ale. I bet that would be lovely as well. The mocktail for that one, in case you were wondering, is an ounce of ginger syrup, an ounce of hibiscus syrup, and an ounce of lemon juice. And then same deal, top it with club soda or ginger ale. Fresca, if you're Maria. Um, or, <laughs> I love it. Or lemon like, <laughs> soda. I picked that one too. So now I'll have to pick one of my additional ones. Oh, wow. As a backup. My first one that I will actually pick is actually Coal Dust. It's the shot that we did. Oh, hey. Uh, for the Battle of Blair yeah. Mountain. One, I picked it because. As I've said many times, always, I'm trying to try new things and Mm -hmm. get over my own biases about what spirits I like and don't like. And because I'm not that big of a bourbon drinker, I mean, I do include it in drinks. but You're trying. I I liked that I came up with a way to do a bourbon shot that I really quite liked. (laughs) (laughs) So to build this one, in case you do not recall, it's an ounce of bourbon a half ounce of amaretto, and a half to three quarters of an ounce of apple juice. And then you put a little sprinkle of freshly ground black pepper on top, and that is your shot. But if you don't like to drink a shot, and as you recall, I got on my shot's soapbox in that episode. I do. 
<laughs> you do not have to chug a shot all at once if you don't want to. I like to think of them as miniature cocktails. But you can also put that over ice and top it with club soda or ginger ale. Like you can make it into more of like a, a sipping drink. Right. I understand shots and how like when you line up a row of shots for people, you're basically saying like the party is getting started and things are going to get wild. And I get it. And that's very fun sometimes. But I I am always a little trepidatious because <laughs> there is that like culture of just getting obliterated, which. Yeah. I. Listen, I'm not judging anyone. I did that plenty when I was younger, but as I've gotten older, like I want to enjoy drinks because of the flavors that they impart. And I certainly like the relaxation effects, but I don't want to become a sloppy mess. (laughs) I have been a stumbleina before. It's not very flattering. (laughs) Drink responsibly. And so I really like the idea of making shots that you could just sip if you want and that you can turn into a more ounceage sippable drink. I really like that about that particular drink, the the idea of you can have it as a shot or here's how to turn it into a more And really a lot of shots would have those options. Absolutely. Start looking at them and thinking about what they would go with. In case you want to do the mocktail version, you're just going to sub out your bourbon for black tea, really heartily steeped black tea. You're going to use almond syrup in lieu of amaretto and then apple juice, of course, can stay the same. Black pepper, pop it on there. I have really gotten to a point where I like black pepper in a drink, which is a strange thing for me. I never would have predicted that. but It's interesting. I enjoy what it does on the palate. So uh, my second drink also included bourbon. But so here's where we get into the I should never, could never, would never pick this drink. But here I am picking this drink. It is the zealot inspired by the story of John Brown. Mm, It's delicious. Pick it. (laughs) It is. But my thing is, it contains bourbon, smoked bourbon, and milk, which should be a deal breaker for me because I'm not a milk drinker, not a dairy milk drinker, not a non-dairy milk drinker. And I still went for it. And this is one and a half ounces of espresso, one and a half ounces of chocolate milk, one and a half ounces of smoked bourbon. Shaken with ice, strained into your glass, sprinkle of cocoa powder and cinnamon, and you're good. I think the mocktail just re- removed the bourbon. It's a lovely, delicious drink, but on paper, <laughs> I just, <laughs> dairy, there's dairy. I just. I don't do a lot of, da- I love cheese, but I don't do a lot of dairy in drinks. I'm always going to go with like an oat milk usually because I just don't, I don't enjoy dairy milk either. So I yeah. understand that moment of like, Right, that moment of like there's oat milk and chocolate, chocolate milk, milk is the magic here for me. It's better than all other options because I've done it with chocolate almond milk and I've done it with chocolate soy milk and I didn't like it as much. But chocolate oat milk was like, hello there. That's interesting. I tried it with chocolate almond milk and I found it good. I did not try it with chocolate soy because I didn't. I just wasn't sure that would be for me. But I think chocolate oat might bring a good bit to the table for this one as well. Anyway, if you think that this is a drink that looks weird and you don't want to try it, I actually feel like. Give it a try. (laughs) I'm here for you. I'm backing you up. Give it a try. The chocolate milk works. (laughs) I love it. Listen, everything doesn't work for everybody. That's why it's fun to play and make new things. Exactly. Are you ready for my second one? Yes. Oh, yes. Go ahead. Okay. My second one was the Overwhelmed Reason, which is the Malarudenschuld episode. I was very close to doing this one, too. And I picked this one because this 
afforded me the opportunity to play with Aquavit, which I quite like, and I (laughs) have been wanting to do something with for a long time. This is my honorable mention, and it is because of Aquavit. I had never had it, and this drink expanded my boozy boundaries. And it had to be included on the list. Sorry, go right ahead. But I'm here with it. No, I think that's the case for a lot of people. And like I said during the episode, a lot of times people have it in their heads that Aquavit is a liqueur. It has 40% alcohol by volume, which puts it right in line with spirits like vodka or gin. It's like a vodka, I consider it to be. So if you think about it that way, it becomes a little bit different in what you can do with it. And as you may recall, this one, we went with blackberries. And so we did five ripe blackberries that we muddled pretty aggressively and then added two ounces of aquavit, one ounce of lemon juice, and one ounce of simple syrup and gave that all a shake, strained over ice into a chilled glass because you don't want the blackberry pulp in this one, and then you just pour a little club soda over it. Delicious. (laughs) (laughs) It it, It really was. Like I said, it expanded for me on a drink that I had never had before. And that was pretty cool. That's always pretty cool to have. And what I also liked is that it expanded into another thing for the mocktail, because as you recall, we made caraway seed tea for that. That is right. I completely forgot about that. Yeah. So instead of the aquavit, you will use the exact same proportions, but you will make caraway seed tea, which is made by crushing a teaspoon of seeds and then adding a cup of boiling water to it and then letting it steep for about eight minutes and straining off the seeds. And you use that instead of your aquavit and you get an alcohol-free version of that drink, which is very yummy. And I had not made caraway seed tea before this, and now I have made it just to drink it, not as part of any of this, because now I like it. I was about to ask you, have you just had it as tea? Yes. Yes. Interesting. Um, What's your third? My final drink is the dubious honor inspired by the story of Mary Surratt, and it's actually inspired by the story that you told coming up with your drink. It's a, an ounce and a half of bourbon and an ounce of limoncello, a couple drops of, a drops of vanilla extract, and I think it was ginger beer or ginger ale yeah. on top of it. And we swapped out black tea for the bourbon. It wasn't a drink really for me, but I loved the story that you told about how you came up with this drink. And I had to put it on my list because of that. You brought this to top three. <laughs> you had a story about, I think it was a, about, uh, what is his name? Jerry, Jerry Thomas. Yes, and his vanilla punch and how you had very loosely inspired taking his recipe. But I recall the idea of, to me, Mary and her whiskey punch, just the way you were telling it, and like her guests in her house and John Wilkes Booth was there because he was everywhere. Just this idea of this townhouse in Washington, D.C., and she's hosting these whiskey punch parties, and your story was great. Yeah, and she wanted whiskey ready for the night that everything went down. She had to have it. Well, you got it. Yada. Everyone will need to steal their nerves. Um, She was ready with the inspiration. (laughs) Yeah, Jerry Thomas's bartending guide. We've talked about several times on the show because he's usually credited with having written the first bartending guide and it is quite an interesting and fun read there's a part of my brain that always goes you should try every recipe in here i'm never gonna do that let me be honest (laughs) there are cookbooks and recipe books i have done that with it's not gonna happen with that one in part because some of them just don't sound very good to me and i don't want to make them that's really the (laughs) 
<laughs> and that's just the end of it. <laughs> but it is a really good read, I think, for anybody that does like drinks and cocktails to think about, because we always think about prohibition being the rise of cocktails to cover the taste of what was often called bathtub gin. Right, bathtub gin. There were cocktails and mixed drinks before that. They were just done in different ways. And in fact, my next one. Yeah, what you got? Is based on a prohibition cocktail. This is the one that we made called Ezra's Words, which is based on the last word, which is a cocktail that's been around for a very long time. I looked at that one hard for my list, but I figured Ezra was on my top three shows and I really just needed to walk away from him. (laughs) This one, as you recall, is made with uh, the original. Here, I'll read the original last word and then I'll remind you of the shot that we did. I remember that. The original is three quarters of an ounce of dry gin, three quarters of an ounce of maraschino liqueur. Maraschino is the Italian pronunciation. Three quarters of an ounce of green chartreuse and three quarters of an ounce of fresh lime juice. I am in a serious committed relationship with chartreuse, but I know not everybody (laughs) wants to buy it. It's pricey. You know what I mean? It runs about 60 bucks a bottle. Right. If you have disposable income, that may not sound like a lot, but that is a lot to spend if you're experimenting and you don't know if you like it. Absolutely. If you make a glass of whatever it is and you've got the rest of that bottle left and you spent $60 on it. You call me. I'll handle it. (laughs) Send it to Holly. She'll take it. Seriously, there are just those things that you try in the world the first time and you're like, I am in love. And that is my relationship with both green and yellow chartreuse. I love that stuff. On a more common and less expensive endeavor, for Ezra's version, we take out that three quarters of an ounce of green chartreuse and replace it with three quarters of an ounce of elderflower liqueur, which most people like. It's not as complex in flavor as chartreuse, which has a hundred plus different herbals involved in it. So it is a very complex thing. One of those might strike your palate incorrectly, whereas elderflower liqueur, pretty predictable in flavor. Most people know what it tastes like and most people like it okay. And it's there's not a ton of it, so it isn't driving the bus here anyway. (laughs) It's really, this is one of those drinks. Sometimes you get a cocktail where one of the elements is really the strongest note. Yes. But because this is has three quarters of an ounce of each thing, nobody is really like the dominant player here. They all kind of bring different things out of each other. That's one of the reasons chartreuse is so interesting in the last word, because it has many different elements to it and they come out differently because of these other things. But in this case, elderflower liqueur, it's delicious. For the mocktail, we're doing a whole sub out because that's all other than the lime juice everything else is alcohol so (laughs) have some lime juice for the mocktail you're still going to do three quarters of an ounce each but you will do cherry syrup elderflower syrup lime juice and ginger beer and you can actually go higher on your Mm -hmm. ounceage of ginger beer to counter having that much syrup in it just so it's not so super sweet that mocktail sounds delicious that's one that I have made here at the house several times since we did that episode. Yeah, right that. Right now, if you have it over ice, it's a little summery still. It has that cherry and the floral note of the elderflower syrup. It's just like a good, it's a good one to just have on hand, make it in a pitcher. And I like to do the everything but the ginger beer pre-mixed. So your cherry syrup, elderflower syrup, lime juice. And then if you have people over, especially, you can just 
drop the syrup and then top it with ginger beer so you still, your bubbles don't go flat waiting for people, but you have all of the real mixing is done. So easy. So yummy. So good. Delicious. I did have my honorable mention, which is The Extremist, which is our last one of the season. Yeah. Which was, again, in the episode about Kotoku Shusui, which is one ounce of Midori, which I sang the virtues of. No one needs to hear it again. (laughs) A half ounce of grapefruit vodka and an ounce of apple juice. And then that is shaken with lots of ice and strained into a chilled martini glass. It's just yummy. It's a yummy little sip. Like I said, I'm a crusader for the reclamation of Midori. I mentioned in that episode that a lot of bartenders will make a stink face if you talk about Midori. But there are some craft bartenders in particular that are really working to like do refined versions of Midori sours and other Midori based cocktails to kind of reinvigorate its reputation and point out exactly what I talked about, that it has a unique flavor that can be very beautiful if it's properly balanced. The mocktail on this one was an ounce of grapefruit juice, an ounce of apple juice, and a half ounce of honeydew syrup. And again, this is a pretty light in terms of like ounceage. It's not a big drink. So you want it over lots of ice and you can always add a little extra stuff to it. You can throw some club soda on there, some ginger ale, and it's going to be just divine. It's going to be lovely. Those are the shows and drinks. Thank you to everyone who has been joining us for our final episode today of the season of treason, but everybody who's been around this season. We hope that you will be here with us next week because once again, we are rolling right into our next topic. Maria, do you want to tell them what it is? So you will see that our first episode of our next season is of The Art Nappers, which is a brand new season all about the brazen tales of audacious art heists. I can't wait. Me either. A little bit different than what we've just been talking about. Yes, hopefully slightly less fraught, and I think it it will be execution-free, I think. I was actually just going to say, I hope no one gets taken into a Russian forest and shot in the back during the Art Heist episodes. That would be just a nice change. Criminalia is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, please visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.